listeners, friends, fellow webheads, true believers, welcome to the Spider-Man 77 Fan Show Podcast. My name is John Bergman, and I have the honor of hosting this particular episode. I'm a journalist by trade, sports writer most often, but like all of you, the Spider-Man live-action series from the 1970s holds a really special place in my memory. In fact, I can say there was probably no VHS tape that I watched more as a kid than the Chinese web feature-length movie from the Spider-Man series. I even remember buying the tape. It was the CBS Fox video version, which is actually super rare now, so I wish I still had mine. It's the version that has the black background and there's some white webs on it and Spider-Man's pictured there holding his hands up near his face. Anyway, I bought a used copy. The VHS tape was so tattered that it was actually being sold in a discount bin at a video store. But I purchased it, I took it home, and thus began my lifelong fandom of the whole Spider-Man TV series. But back to today's podcast episode. It's actually pertinent to the Chinese web that I just mentioned, because today's episode features an interview with Dana Kaproff, who did the music for the Chinese web. He did the music for the whole second season of the Spider-Man show. And as we all know, that means that he was the creator of and the mastermind behind so many of those wonderful themes and the little riffs that we all love from the show. I'd like to think that Dana helped fill in a lot of blanks in this episode, answer a lot of questions and curiosities that have lingered about the Spider-Man music for decades now. So here it is, my chat with musician and composer Dana Kaproff. Dana, thank you so much for taking some time to chat today. I am thrilled to talk to you because in preparation for this, this conversation, it occurred to me that I think so many fans of this Spider-Man 1970s series would agree that the music, the music is one of the most iconic aspects of the series. And yet, as much as cast and crew have done interviews over the years. There's been some podcast stuff. There's been some YouTube stuff and magazine articles. Information about the music has been few and far between, to say the least, if not almost non-existent. So I'm I'm honored to chat with you, and I'm looking forward to getting a more comprehensive story or backstory to the music and, and the creation of the music. Well, great, John. Uh, it's It's been a, a held... Uh, a closely held secret for many years, uh, but it took you to come and uncover it. And now the truth will be out there. So uh, go ahead. Well, to use the comic book parlance, let's start mm -hmm. with your origin story. Sure. I, I read that your father was an accomplished musician, a violinist, uh, or I'm sorry, a, a, a cellist, an LA yeah. studio musician. He was a cellist, but your uncle was also an accomplished musician, a violinist. And so when I hear that, I'm thinking your childhood must have just been so unique with your backyard, so to speak, being mm -hmm. recording studios, professional, uh, maybe film shoots or um, uh, music venues. So can you tell me the story of what it was like growing up in such a music musical household and musical environment. Sure. You know, it, it, it's it's uh, good that you touch on that because uh, I did have a, a childhood that's pretty unique and so might be of interest to others. Uh, my Both my father and my uncle were born in New York, where I am now residing, and um, and they, uh, they both became successful studio musicians in New York City, 
before moving to Los Angeles at an early time in uh, TV, you know, it was really a time where radio was still very strong. And so that was in the 40s, in the 40s they moved. Uh, my father uh, was a very accomplished classical cellist and had uh, been in the uh, Newark Symphony with uh, under Toscanini and so forth. So maybe a name your, your viewers and listeners won't know. But uh, when he came to Los Angeles, he became very successful in both the film and the record business as a cellist. And he became what we call the first cellist. In other words, the, the, the cellist that sits in the first chair and directs the rest of the cello section uh, as to how to you know, phrase certain things and play certain things. And he became the first cellist in, in uh, both for some very, very famous film composers like uh, Jerry Goldsmith and Elmer Bernstein and John Barry, uh, to name a few. And he also became the first cellist of some very prominent um, record arrangers and producers uh, like uh, Marty Page, who did um, a lot of work with Frank Sinatra, and also Nelson Riddle, who did a lot of work for Frank Sinatra, and uh, and also uh, Gene Page, who did so many arrangements for famous songs. So um, my father played on so many famous songs that your listeners would know from, uh, you know, I Am Woman and the Bee Gees uh, Staying Alive and... Uh, uh, Rolling Stones and Beach Boys. My father was the played on the um, uh, what's the song? Uh, Good Vibrations. You know, I mean, so I yes, it's true. I came from a, a very unique background, and and my family's uh, was very close, in particular with Elmer Bernstein and Jerry Goldsmith. They were over at the house a lot. A lot, and um, so I grew up in in that business. I also, as you as you alluded to, uh, I went down to recording sessions uh, where my father was playing both record sessions and live TV because he used to do things like the live uh, Carol Burnett show. I used to do the Judy Garland show, and um, and I went down to lots of big film recording uh, uh, sessions you know, that uh, big movies that people know, um, especially like with Jerry Goldsmith or Elmer Bernstein. And um, so I, yeah, and I, I got to see filming being done because I'd be down on the lot of 20th Century Fox or Paramount or MGM. And it was exciting. It was an exciting way to grow up. And of course, I'm sure it was influential to me. And my, my uh, uncle, uh, not only was a, a very successful violinist, but at some point after moving to LA in his career, he became what we call a contractor, which is also in some areas called a, uh, a uh, music organi a, a, an orchestra director or organizer uh, who is responsible for actually hiring the entire orchestra making sure that everybody's there, making sure that all the right equipment was delivered, making sure that that all everybody gets paid and, and, and all the paperwork is done and that everybody stays in line. Like sometimes at recording sessions, people can get a little too noisy or rambunctious. And and as the contractor, you know, he, he would say, okay, guys, come on, cut it, you know. So, um, yeah, so so I really did grow up in the business, and um, uh, and that was uh, a, a very unique childhood. And how did this dovetail with your own playing of instruments? What what instruments were you or instrument were you drawn to first, and how did that develop? Sure. Well, um, uh, around eight eight years old, I started learning to play the piano, and uh, it was interesting that right away, like. I, I asked my parents to get me some blank music paper and I started, you know, notating ideas of my own, you know, so I guess I just had the calling, you, you might say. And, and so ever since then, um, I was always writing things, uh, uh, writing tunes or whatever. And I got eventually into writing actual songs, whether they were instrumental or or vocal, and um, uh, I, I went 
to school and and I knew by the time I was going to college that I wanted to be a composer. So I just really focused on learning everything and anything about uh, arranging, orchestrating, conducting, um, you know, musical history, theory, and so forth. And uh, just to prepare myself to get out into the real world, which I was anxious to do and did do at an early age. You mentioned uh, several big names there. Uh, Elmer Bernstein, for example, a famous composer, uh, Ten Commandments, Magnificent Seven, Great Escape, the very heroic themed movies, very epic movies in scope. And then also Jerry Goldsmith, who uh, later from the time he he would be sort of a mentor to you, of course, he would go on to do music for Rambo and Star Trek, Planet of the Apes, uh, these very iconic movies in their own right. right. When you had those early ambitions of wanting to to kind of compose, were you thinking because of those people that had influenced you, were you thinking film and television was the area that you wanted to to pursue for for composing i i think so i um i was also interested in songwriting so i wouldn't say that it was uh just the uh the pairing of, of music with moving images uh i i did like the idea of and i was very very into uh popular music at the time um but uh, yes, certainly I thought that the whole idea of scoring film was, was exciting uh, and uh, interesting from a creative perspective. And, uh, and I'd seen, you know, and gone down to so many of these scores being recorded. And sometimes they were much more intimate. I mean, I know you mentioned both Elmer and Jerry. Um, you know, Elmer's score to, um, to Kill a Mockingbird was a very quiet and uh, intimate, uh, beautiful score. One of one of the most beautiful that he wrote. And uh, you know, Jerry did things like that too, including the infamous uh, score to um, uh, to the Polanski movie um, Faye Dunaway about the Mulholland water. Oh. A Chinatown, Chinatown. Oh yeah, oh sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Polanski played a role in it. He didn't direct it. You mentioned some popular music of the era, and I want to hear more about that because we should note this is the 1960s, 1970s, this time period that we're talking about when you're uh, coming into adulthood, into college, into your music career. What kind of popular music were you gravitating towards? Uh, rock music, any particular bands or some maybe jazz music or anything like that. Right. Um, it's interesting, John. The, I listened at it from a very early age to a lot of classical music, uh, which I loved and still do very much. Um, and when my, my parents got me my first record player, you know, I had classical records playing, you know, so I had... Uh, Tchaikovsky piano concerto and Brahms piano concerto and things like that that I love. Uh, and then somewhere around maybe 12, 13, somewhere there, the uh, the Beatles managed, you know, the Beatles managed maybe with a little bit of Herman's Hermits and some other things going on, the birds and, uh, and definitely the Rolling Stones started to creep into my uh, listening um, uh, and and I got into it. I really uh, enjoyed it. And um, uh, and so I'd say those early groups, you know, Beatles and, and the Stones, very, very influential. Uh, I didn't discover my dad used to listen to some jazz. So I was I was familiar uh, to some extent with with that and he um he had worked with and and had some great jazz records of andre previn playing playing jazz piano he used to have a tree and so forth so uh i i had that also as well and 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 frank sinatra and um my dad used to uh listen to barbara streisand and, and so so i did have uh, a a range of music but i did get very much into popular music from right around that age and then i really got uh i was very influenced early on by some some of the people who did some interesting long um 
uh, longer sort of experimental pieces like uh, Donovan and uh, The Doors and um, uh, uh, later on, um, sometimes these names escape me, the guy uh, who did Moonshadow, uh, Cat Stevens, uh, who, you know, who did some songs that were very long. There was even a uh, a song by a group that I, two guys that I can't remember anymore their names, but, but, you know, the song went on for like about eight minutes. And, and that was also kind of interesting because it wasn't just the, the typical three minute thing, but it was uh, experimental and, and thoughtful. So I, you know, all these things kind of influenced me at the same time that I still did con continue to listen to classical music and, and jazz and, and, and other types of music. I think this is all actually a pretty good segue into your work on the Spider-Man series for a couple sure. of reasons. First of all, the the music that you did for that show is contemporary in the sense that you were incorporating elements from rock and roll and stuff like that. And huh. also, though, you were quite young when you started working on the Spider-Man <laughs> yeah. series, I, yeah. especially considering what a significant role it was on a on the CBS network and whatnot. You were in your earlier mid-20s, I believe, when you yes. came on for the second season, which was in 1978. So tell me that story. How did your involvement in the series come about? What's that origin story? Yeah, um, the the producer, uh, Lionel Siegel, who we, we called Lee, so Lee Siegel, uh, was a, a an acquaintance with the family. And he learned about, you know, he learned about me being a composer and working on things. And I'd already done, um, I'd already done some things actually for NBC. I'd, uh, I, I worked on a miniseries um, called Captains and Kings. And, uh, and I'd uh, done my own miniseries that was, uh, um, it was a, a war series, boy, you know, these names escape me, but it'll come, um, once an eagle. So like a, you know, an eight part miniseries. And I was, this is before uh, Spider-Man. So, um, you know, I'd already had a chance to kind of prove myself on the, on a, at, at a major network and on major projects. And uh, so Lee was interested in giving me uh, a shot and I'm sure I, I must have played some stuff for him at some point. This is going back a ways, so please forgive me that I don't have a you know a photographic remembrance of it. Uh, I don't know if the if Spider Man is the first thing I did for Lee because I know I did two other TV movies that he produced that weren't having to do with Spider Man, and one was called Exo Man. And um, I think that that I, I wrote that was 1977, EXO Man. And then uh, right around the time that I was working on Spider-Man, and I don't know if it came before or after, I just can't remember, but I did another TV movie for him called The Ultimate Imposter. And, um, and so one way or another, I got the shot at doing Spider-Man and uh, if, doing Spider-Man the second season. Yeah, were you when you get that shot? Are you do you have a frame of reference for Spider Man? Are you a, were you a comic book reader in the in the sixties and seventies, or or a completely blank canvas in your mind when you go into it? Completely blank. You know, I never I never was a comic book uh, person uh, per se. Not that I had anything against it. It just wasn't something that I got into, and. Uh, um, and at the time, the the appearance of comic book heroes had been more more dealt with in a um, maybe in a campy way. Like Batman had been on TV, if I'm not mistaken, for a while, and you know it was being done in a very campy way with the with. Um, uh, uh, you know, they, they they would show on the screen Bam and Whoosh and and the and the music was kind of campy big band sort of thing, um, and so I just came in. I mean, this Spider Man had already been on for a season, and um, you know, I'm you'll probably be asking me be asking me this, so I'll just 
cut to the chase, which is that I think the first season, Stu Phillips was the composer and it had a different theme. And, uh, and, um, when I got the shot at doing it, the, you know, the first thing that occurred to me was I wanted to change the the whole approach, the whole feel of the show. I wanted to, because I love storytelling. That's what I do with my music. I really kind of just want to bring out the story in a musical way. And I, I felt that uh, Spider-Man could be much more um, exciting, youthful, contemporary music. And so I wanted to bring that kind of edge of what was happening in pop music at the time to the show um, and give it that, uh, that energy because also Spider-Man said he's, he was a very energetic character um, and, and a youthful character. I mean, you know, the, 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 the actor and the, and, the, and the character itself were both youthful and, and, uh, and I thought that I could do some things with that. So, so that was where I wanted to go with it. And, and, and they, it, Lee liked that idea. Yeah. You mentioned the lineage a little bit and it, it is pretty unique, the the lineage, the personnel for the series. It, even going way back before the first season, the pilot episode, a gentleman named Johnny Spence did mm. the music. Johnny Spence had a, a prolific career in his own right. Uh, he was a, worked with Tom Jones, Ella Fitzgerald, Bob Hope, all these kind of pillars of, of contemporary pop music. Uh, but he actually tragically died he he was he passed away a month before the pilot aired i think mm -hmm. he passed away in august of 1977 the pilot airs in september now obviously the pilot had been shot way before that but then so johnny spence did the music for the pilot then Stu phillips comes in for the first season and then you come in for the second season but if you if you look at some of the end credits for the show you're credited mostly for that whole second season, there is one episode called the con caper for what mm -hmm. it's worth, where it's you and Stu are both credited mm -hmm. in the second season, which I always kind of found a little, uh, a little interesting. So can you talk a little bit about Stu's exit? Do you know why he exited and, and, and was there collaboration in his exit with you or was it just kind of no interaction really to speak of between you and Stu? Yeah, well, a funny backstory about Stu is that when I first got into the business after coming out of, uh, of uh, college, I apprenticed with Stu. I actually apprenticed with Stu. He gave me, he gave me my, actually my very first shot at doing some arranging and a little bit of ghostwriting. At the time he was uh, writing music for the series McLeod and he was also writing music for um, another series that I just, uh, I don't remember the name of, but it was another TV series and uh, very nice guy, you know, and, and he liked my work and we got along and, and then all of a sudden I started getting my own work that was completely separate from him. And, and so I was kind of off on my own. By the time I got involved with Spider-Man, I didn't even know that Stu was working on the show. I had no, no contact with him in regards to the show. And um, I don't remember specifically any conversations with uh, Lee, the producer, about, um, about Stu and his music. Other than that, I was being given a clean slate. To, to create a new theme and to take a new approach. I don't remember anything about, you know, them saying something about what they didn't like or, or what they did like or anything like that. But I just know that they were looking for, for something different. Now, uh, a couple things that you and your listeners might not know is that in, in situations like this, you know, the composer especially in, uh, in episodic TV back then, it's pretty low on the totem pole. Uh, the, the, if you look at the credits of one of these shows, you'll see that there's multiple producers, there's, there's executive producers. Then of course, there's the whole network involved and all of the 
creative and non-creative people who have say-sos in, in things. So the composer is not really privy to the machinations going on uh, behind the scenes about a lot of things, including creative things. Uh, I only dealt with Lee. Um, so I wasn't getting input from, from multiple sources. And, uh, and my guess is the only reason why there was a, a credit that was split between Stu and myself was that it was not uncommon at the time if there was existing music for a series, uh, let's say from a previous season, and for whatever reason, maybe because they went back in and they edited something after, you know, let's say I recorded the music for the show, and then they edited something and something didn't work. And they said, oh, you know, there was a there was a piece of music from season one that we could put in there. And so that's, that's what they would do. And then, you know, to be fair, then they would they would credit both composers because of that that factor. So it wasn't that there was any um, uh, any co-composing going on. Uh, I'm sure that was the explanation for that. Well, and if you you said maybe that you only really corresponded directly with Lee, uh, which is uh, I wanted to mention another name to you, which was sure. John Fresco, who was credited as the music supervisor for the series. And I was curious when I read that not knowing much about how network television works. I was going to ask you, who is John Fresco? What does a music supervisor do? How much oversight did he have in this process? Um, That's funny. I hadn't heard that name in a long time. Johnny Fresco. Uh, Johnny was a, he was a, a character, very nice guy, very nice guy, but you know, like one of those bigger than life guys. Um, and uh he didn't really have involvement, you know. I think, I think his job was to make sure that everything went smoothly and everything got done. And maybe, you know, maybe he was a liaison where, where there's the 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 brass say, "Here's the budget," you know, and here's the schedule when we need the music by such and such time, and a, and and so that in in. In those days, the music supervisor was essentially a coordinator to, to make sure that everything uh, was was happening and when it should happen. Yeah. Let's dive more into the recording process, mm -hmm. because I am all ears to hear how it even works. I mean, did you get film canisters, so to speak, for like certain scenes and then you're mm -hmm. you're doing the music or did you get full episodes that did not have music? Uh, I'm every single detail you can think of down to where were you record? What studio were you recording these, these great tracks in? I'm, I'm sure. a captive audience. Sure. Well, you know, gosh, things have, have changed so much over the years with, as technology has, has advanced, but, uh, I was able to get the, the beginning of my, uh, my composing career, was just about the time that they were switching from ha having to do things on moviolas, which is what the you know my the people who mentored me had to sit there with the moviola and then you know uh, use that as their reference, and I think I was able to get into having a a three quarter inch video. Uh, version of the film. I think that I remember having some big, huge behemoth of a machine uh, and, and started to do that. Also, another thing that would happen is at the time, um, I would have a music editor. And uh, the, way, the way that a typical episode uh, would would be approached is that there'd be what was called a spotting session. So I would I would get a time and date to come to the studio, and the episode that that now was ready for music, I would come in, and the music editor uh, would come in um, along with producer, maybe director, maybe somebody else, whatever. And we would sit in a little theater. We would run the film 
uh, and we would discuss in great specific detail um, where each cue would go, where how where the cue would begin in exact detail, like you know when 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 Peter Parker looks to the right, the cue begins, and then the cue will continue until we cut to the interior of the bank, you know, a minute and 37 seconds later. The music editor would then take the film and give me, they would write out and then have it typed out, uh, exact detail to the 10th of a second, every single cut and significant action that took place in that period of time from when the queue began to when the queue ended. So I could be looking at these sheets of paper going, knowing that at 53.2 seconds, the guy pulls his gun out, you know, and at, at one minute and 3.5 seconds, we cut to the plane overhead. That allowed me then to look for, even without the film, it allowed me to identify spots that I felt were important to address musically in terms of storytelling. Do I want to change the mood here? Do I want to accent something? Do I want to introduce a new uh, musical flavor, a new instrument, uh, whatever? Uh, does the does the pace change? Do we do we is is this tension building or did the tension uh, was the tension released and we want to um, we want to give the audience a feeling that now things have quieted down. All these different kinds of things that you do as a composer to tell the story from a musical perspective. So that's how I would work um, in terms of uh, going from that point to I would write out the music in those days. I would write out the music on music paper, you know, big, big score paper for an orchestra. So every, every instrument would have its own line of, of notes. Um, and I would determine uh, ahead of time what the instrumentation was that I would want to use. Now, because there was always a specific budget um, for each show, then I would know, and I would work in, in conjunction with the with the both the music supervisor and the contractor I mentioned earlier in our conversation about my my uncle Nathan being a contractor. I was not able to use him for for these shows because the, these shows were being done at um, I think they were being done at MGM or Universal. I can't remember, but they had their own contractor. Some, many times some of the studios had their own in-house contractor, but the contractor would work with me to make sure that the, that the, um, the instruments that I wanted fit in with the budget. So like, I couldn't say, well, gee, I want to have 50 musicians. Well, you only have the budget for uh, 18. <laughs> so, and some musicians, believe it or not, are more expensive than others because um, let's say each violinist is a certain amount. The, the, the musicians, musicians union has a scale that they use, but let's say a percussionist or, uh, or a guitarist might be more expensive per hour because they play additional instruments or whatever there's that, that even like what, what we call in in the, in the woodwind section the word doublers so let's say somebody who can come in and play different saxophones an alto saxophone a tenor saxophone uh, also play clarinet also play flute each time that musician picks up one of those different instruments it's called a double and and it's reflected in what they get paid that there was they don't just get paid the same amount if they only play one instrument or multiple, they get paid more because each time they play another instrument, they get something extra. Anyway, so long story short, that is how 
I would come up with a budget. I would determine what's the sound I wanted for that show. You know, did I want a lot of strings? Did I want a lot of brass? Did I want a lot of percussion? What, did I want a rhythm section with drums and, and bass and one or multiple guitars and so forth? Then we would, I would have a hand in making sure that I got the specific musicians that I felt had the kind of sound and feel that I liked. So I sort of developed a, a, a group of musicians that I would ask for first. Sometimes they weren't available. And, uh, and the contractor would also be useful in helping me select alternatives as the case may be. Then we would move towards a specific date for recording. I would have then, you know, always have worked under deadline. So I would know that on March 17th, we were going to have a, a, a session at, at uh, MGM. And, uh, and these musicians would be called to, to show up for that. The session begins at 10 a.m. I'm given it just like because of the budget, it's not just the amount of musicians, but it's the amount of hours that I can afford to be using those musicians. So there's a limit, let's say that I can only have them for a three hour session. Um, I would have to finish writing the music in time to get the music to a copyist. So there was always a copyist involved, somebody who would take the scores that I had handwritten then they have to take those scores and they have to write out individual parts for each musician to then be on the musician's music stand so that they are just looking at their parts. So that's a whole nother segment that takes place. And there has to be a bit of lead time because you, I can't suddenly dump all that on the copyist, you know, an hour before the recording session, they have to have some lead time too. So I would normally be handing things to the copyist over the, say the course of the week or so that I'm working on the music and maybe be down to the last cue or two uh, the, the, the day before the session. I show up, I'm the conductor. Uh, there's, there's always a, an engineer involved uh, who's from the studio. And we had great recording uh, engineers at the time. Some of, some of them were very, very famous. I know Danny Wallen and uh, some other people that uh, uh, are well known. And, uh, and then I would get up and I would uh, start uh, rehearsing the orchestra uh, for, for the, whatever particular cue I chose to begin, to begin with. And uh, I would know you know, if there was a particular spot in the queue that might be more difficult than others, because there isn't time to just rehearse everything a lot. And these are great musicians who are great sight readers and they can, um, they can look at something and they can almost play it perfectly the first time around. So that's a, that's a must. You have to have people like that. Uh, and then we, you know, since, since time also was a factor, we would move as quickly as as possible to uh, to record the music there, and sometimes you know, sometimes there would be a mistake or something. You know, you have to if the mistake was noticeable, we would go back and and fix it. And sometimes, you know, the the music supervisor might say, "Well, we have to move on," <laughs> and you just say, "Okay, you know, we, we move on, and we 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 did it as good as it's going to get." Uh, and so that's sort of the the general overall night. You may want me to go into some specifics, but I wanted to just give you the sort of start to finish of, of how that gets done. Well, I think one of the the good things that we've established there is the, the, the show is famous for being shot in mostly in Los Angeles, despite mm -hmm. the fact that it's it's presented in the action in the show at, to be New York City. But mm -hmm. um, aside from some shots here and there, most of it was shot in. Los Angeles. So it sounds like the music then was done in Los Angeles. Absolutely. As well. I, I lived in Los Angeles uh, all, almost all my life. And uh, so, yes, it was all totally Hollywood. With the, with the, uh, I was there and um, and that's that's where I did the the bulk of my music work over the, the past lifetime. I want to give credit where it is due as much as we can, as much as the memory can be conjured up. I know you said the personnel was changing and it depended on what the, the scene was, the situation was, but in a lot of your 
music from the series, I hear prominently drums, bass. Of course, there's that real famous guitar, the kind of wah-wah guitar mm -hmm. sound. There's mm -hmm. some piano or maybe some sort of electric piano. There's saxophone. Can you recall any of the musicians that were part of this ever-changing troupe that you had? Sure, uh, I can. Um, you know, the, the, the guitarists that I tended to use at the time were George Deering, who's very well known, um, uh, Dennis Budimir, um, John Goo, and uh, on drums, I used Harvey Mason a lot, and um, uh, I used Hal Blaine, um, uh, and I used Larry Bunker, on occasion and um and then uh for for uh, synth programming i used uh i used um uh, randy kerber and i used um uh, you know i wrote it down here one, one, one second because i wanted to give him credit um uh, uh, michael boddicker very well known. You know, these are guys who did a huge amount of record work, and uh, the 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 sax solos were Joel Peskin, including on the main title. So so, um, and I the the percussionists I used to use were were people like um, uh, Emil Richards, Kenny Watson. and uh, and I do have a story, uh, a funny story about the main title. Um, you know, I was looking to do something very hip and contemporary and, and, uh, kind of, I was influenced by the music of the time. Uh, and, and in fact, um, some, some TV themes have been turned into kind of pop dance music things. Beretta's theme at the time, uh, was influential and, and, um, uh, the theme to SWAT was a big, uh, a big hit, you know? Um, and this was also the time, you know, the time of um, uh, he's the greatest dancer, the freak, I'm every woman, Donna Summer's last dance, uh, you know, the staying alive stuff. So all of that was, was floating in my mind as I, conjured up the main title but one of the funny things that i that i chose to do was because um the the main character peter park is a, is a photographer um i had the percussionist i got a old um uh camera uh, an, uh oriflex and i i we had to we actually had uh, at the recording session, we had a table in front of the orchestra with the camera and a mic, a big mic with a boom coming down to the camera. And it was the, the um, percussionist job to click uh, in, in time to the music. And then, he, then he'd have to advance the, the thing to advance the film to get to be able to click again. And that's actually a, the sound. There is a sound that you hear in the main title that is a real camera click. So that is such a cool anecdote. I hope that everybody <laughs> that hears this goes back and, and can listen to that and try to detect the, the yeah. click. That's clever. Yeah, it, it is there. It is there. So I was, something I threw in. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Joel Peskin. Um, on saxophone, because as a side note here, you released a self-titled album uh, just a couple years before Spider-Man. Your album came out in 1976. A couple right. years later, you're doing the, the second season for Spider-Man. And I do hear a lot of similarities in the instrumentation, uh, in the styles of some of the songs that are on your album and then some of the and then the music you did for Spider-Man. And it's great that people can find a lot of the songs from your album on YouTube if they want to go listen. Brownstones, Snowdrift, Sandcastle, Piranha. These are some titles of songs that people can find on YouTube. Uh, so I was wondering if if making that album influenced your Spider-Man music at all. Uh, the f 
funk sound, I guess. I'm not much of a musician, so you'll have to forgive the the sure. layperson terminology there. But I do hear those similarities. And so it's it's noteworthy then that you mentioned Joel Peskin played on your album. He was sure. the saxophonist. And then he also was playing the saxophone on some of the Spider-Man music. So there is yeah. that crossover there, maybe. Yeah, there is some crossover. Um, yes, that album, um, uh, which I uh, worked very hard on and uh, has become a collector's item and is going to be reissued. I, I just uh, uh, signed with um, a record company called Mad About Records, who, who do interesting reissues and so it is going to get reissued in lp form so people if they want can be on the lookout for that uh i think the 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 way best to describe the relationship between the record and the spider-man music is in a, a couple ways one is of course as a composer you know, I have me, I have my creative sensibilities. That's who I am. And it, of course, it, I change over the years. But at, at that time, which was really uh, the, the record was 76. And I think I was writing Spider-Man in 78 or something. So the, the record, which was totally from me, you know, I wasn't doing it for anybody else. So it was very reflective of my thinking and my creative sensibilities at that time, it was my statement. It was what I wanted to put out there and what I was into. Uh, so to that extent, it's not really surprising that that, that style is then heard when I had a, an opportunity to bring sort of what I felt was a contemporary uh, hip kind of um, uh, popular music angle to the Spider-Man show um, that I would use that in conjunction with, because then in Spider-Man also you do hear classical influences where there's brass and there's strings and there's, there's other types of music that are befitting to other dramatic beats in the show. Uh, and then at the same time also, you know, the, 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 the guys that worked on the album with me, um, who got paid like next to nothing because they, they were also kind of up and coming like I was. They're just kind of fresh out of college and looking to get into the business. And I think they they saw working with me as also an opportunity to, to stretch and get out there. And uh, so when I had an opportunity to, to kind of pay forward, uh, I did. And you know, Joel's a wonderful player. He's still out there playing uh and um and at the time i said well let's have joel play the the sax you know uh and i mentioned john goo john goo also was on the album and and uh, i mentioned that he was one of the guitar players that i constantly uh tried to use on the the spider-man shows um I didn't continue with the bass player. The bass players, uh, used, I, I used to use the contractor, like to use, um, um, there were some great guys, uh, Larry, Larry, I think it was Larry Brown um, and uh, Dominic Genova. Um, so uh, I kind of went with that. The same thing with the drums. Some, sometimes as a, especially you're, you're a fledgling, and you have to kind of pick and choose where you're going to take a risk and where you're going to let the contractor say, use, use these people because they're, they're here day in and day out and they know what they're doing. So there's kind of a mixture of that. I want to be cognizant of, of your time, of our time. Uh, the sort of a, a downer of a subject for people that are fans of this series is the cancellation of the show, which unfortunately came just after that, the second season there, it gets canceled in 1979, despite consistent strong ratings on CBS by all accounts, the rumor or kind of the going theory is that the CBS executives didn't want to be didn't want to risk being labeled the quote the superhero network or something like that because they also had the Incredible Hulk TV series at the time. What do you remember about the end of the show? Was there ever any chatter or was there some momentum prior to that for additional 
Spider-Man seasons that you can recall? Yeah, you know, in, in prepping for uh, this interview, uh, that was really the first I read about what you just explained about uh, the, 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 perhaps the behind the scenes thinking of the network and so forth. And I, I honestly don't remember being privy to any of the uh, discussions about the, the show going forward. Uh, I probably was just informed that there wasn't going to be another season. I'm sure I wasn't overjoyed about it because it was a lucrative, you know, job for me. And I enjoyed it creative creatively. It was a fun show to be working on. Um, so I wasn't happy about that. I kind of feel like the, the, the two hour movie, the, the dragon. I, I feel like that came at the end rather than the beginning. Is that true? That's correct. That was the that is the bookend. Now looking back, that's the bookend for the whole series. That was the end of it. And I I I was very excited to be you know doing a a movie because it was sort of an expansion from just the individual uh, episodes. And um, you know maybe I felt like oh that was going to propel uh, excitement about the show, and maybe even the producers felt likewise, but. The, the you know the network make decisions that, that that I didn't know about the reasoning behind and I and I I didn't even have s subsequent discussions with the producer where you know where he told me much of anything that I remember other than that you know it just wasn't going to happen then I went on to do other work with him I I think in the show's ending one of the biggest tragedies for fans enduring tragedies is that there was never any high quality soundtrack of the Spider-Man series. There was never a, a an eight track or a cassette tape, never a CD. Even nowadays, there's no digital release officially of the music. Now, before we chatted here, you and I were corresponding on email a little bit about this. It Unfortunately, it sounds like you do not have in your possession any of the master tapes of the Spider-Man music. Do fans have any glimmer of hope of ever seeing some high quality audio released? Do you have any idea who or where those those master tapes might be? Well, here's the here's the way it worked. And uh, I, I don't think this is going to be a, a, a hopeful discussion, but I'll it'll be a frank discussion um, in the in the world of episodic TV, the composers were not given, not only were we not given masters, we were not even necessarily given uh, copies of the music. Uh, sometimes we were, and if they we were, they were um, real to real, and they were not they were not at the speed of the professional recordings. They were like at a, a slower speed and a a, a much lesser, uh, for high fidelity quality. Um, so whatever I might have gotten was in, in not, not something that would sound very good. Uh, another, another factor is that composers don't own the music that they record for, for these shows. Uh, the studio does. The studio owns music. The studio owns the masters. So there's no way the composer gets anywhere near the masters. Do the masters exist someplace? They very well probably do in some vault in Los Angeles somewhere because they, I don't know that they would have a desire to destroy them, you know, to make room, but you never know. But, um, but I would have no access to that. And I know from other shows that I've done where people have looked for scores in similar situations, it's a needle in a haystack situation because the studios, the, the studios have gone through so many changes of ownership and even the name of the studio. And, and, and so to try and find things buried in recording vaults and places is is very difficult there needs to be a fiduciary incentive you know if somebody said oh we're going to give you a hundred thousand dollars for the for the masters for spider-man 
you know, somebody would go, go look for it. But, but because fans say, hey, you know, we'd really like to hear it. Uh, you know, I don't know. Let the let the GoFundMe for one hundred thousand dollars from fans begin. <laughs> but it, it wouldn't right go here. to me anyway. You'd have to contact the, the the studio that owns the show, and they would be the ones who would then own the masters, and then they would be the ones to be looking for it. I think related to the fact that there hasn't been an official release it makes official licensing uh, difficult, if not impossible, if, if people want to use the your music for sampling and stuff like that. And to that point, I know they're out there, there is and there has been unauthorized use of your Spider-Man music, unauthorized sampling. It's been used in a number of, of songs and whatnot. Uh, what is your reaction to that? And, and I suppose maybe more productively if fans hear that i mean fans want you to get the the credit and the compensation that you deserve for creating it what can fans do if we come across unauthorized use or or, or something like that well that's that's a nice thing to bring up john i appreciate that uh, has the music been used in anything that's been really you know popular or, well, or are they more kind of like uh, sort of off the wall things yeah, I mean, I would think it would be more off the wall, but nowadays with with YouTube, it's kind of like everything can be equally as accessible, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, just because well, it hasn't had a, a mainstream release or something, I think there's still people that have probably been hearing unauthorized snippets. So the way that works is, unfortunately, that as I as I alluded to earlier, um, I don't own the music. Uh, the studio owns the music, so whatever unauthorized use of the music is taking place, that would be up to the studio to claim a copyright infringement. I can't claim a copyright infringement because I don't own the music. So I have no business, I have no standing as a court would say to, to, to claim injury. Um, the only way that I could be uh, gaining from even even though it's unauthorized, I could be gaining from the use of the music is through uh, the PROs, which are the performance rights organizations. So I'm with ASCAP. And if let's say hypothetically that uh, Rihanna, you know, uh, releases a, a, a tune and it's got a bit of Spider-Man music in it of mine, well, then every time it's played, there, there should be a little bit of royalty uh, coming to me as one of the co-authors of the song. And if I wasn't listed as a co-author, I should be. And that's where I would have legal standing to say, you know, I, I, I wrote that music and it's included in something else. It's no different than, because there's, there's been a lot of sampling and a lot of types of music, especially in the, in the hip hop and rap fields. And, uh, and that became a big to-do early on in those genres where, you know, where somebody would use a sample of something else as part of their, uh, of their song. And the, the, there was a big to-do about, you know, you can't do that unless you also put down that they, they co-wrote it because their music's in it and they have to be credited and so forth. So to that extent, you know, possibly I could gain something but uh, um, unless it's in something that's really getting a lot of play, it, it wouldn't be very valuable use of my time to be <laughs> to be looking after. But I, I appreciate you asking the question, and uh, and 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 I would love for fans to try and get me credit wherever wherever they feel credit is due. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, at least in a, a comment section or something, identify you as the as the creator no, of. I, you know, uh, parenthetically, uh, I, I when you first contacted me, and I, um, I just kind of did a Google search of uh, Spider Man TV series, and and I found like right away I found uh, a, 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 a something on YouTube. And it's it's give, giving some other guy, this guy Richard something, 
it's like he wrote the theme and I'm like, I'm no, he didn't write the theme. He had nothing to do with the theme. I, he was involved in the show in some peripheral way as, you know, uh, doing set design or something. And, and it, it really did, you know, piss me off, but I didn't, I didn't take action because I just got so many things going on. <laughs> so, and I felt like even with YouTube, I didn't know that whether I would really have standing, you know, in YouTube, you're allowed to, to, um, to place a complaint. If, if you feel that you, there, you have a copyright that's being infringed upon, but since I didn't, since I don't own the publishing uh, and I don't own the masters, um, I, it looked like I wasn't really, in a position to say to YouTube, well, you know, that's my music. Yeah, I wrote it. And he's say saying that he wrote it, but I don't think that YouTube would stop, stop uh, him displaying that. The people who would have a better chance is the studio that owns the, the TV series. On a much more positive note and continuing sure. the discussion to nowadays, I, mm. I think what's been really exciting is to see a new generation of people introduced to the series maybe through the the marvel the disney stuff and then they kind of go down the rabbit hole of the the history of spider-man and superhero film and television and there is such a, a vibrant fandom culture with meetups conventions stuff like comic-con some other people associated with the spider-man series actors and whatnot have done convention appearances comic-con appearances have you ever done something like that or th thought about Done. I mean, I'm thinking there is nothing that would make me more excited than hearing than seeing you at a Comic Con or something do, let's say, like a live rendition of some of these greatest hit themes from the Spider-Man series that you created. That would that would just be such a a real um, exciting thing for fans. Well, maybe you've just uh, de uh, delineated a, a new revenue stream for me. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, no, I haven't. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it and considered it. Um, there have been some other shows that I did the music for that I also have had a, a fan base for and gotten, you know, similar kinds of... Uh, found myself in similar kinds of situations about being interviewed and so forth. Falcon Crest was one of them. Uh, I wrote the, the theme and music to Starman, the TV series uh, that has its own following. So um, I, I love this. I love that, that there's fans. I love that they're enthusiastic uh, and that they want to know everything about it, everything. And I think it's great. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be opposed to nor or you know refuse to be involved in these things, but I had's not something that I really thought about or pursued. Well, if it's not clear in all the wonderful details that you shared, I think the overarching tone I get is that you look back on your experience during doing the Spider-Man series just with a lot of reverence, very fondly. It was a time that. Mm. Uh, it was very formative in a lot of ways from the sound of it to your career, the rest of your career. Uh, so it's, it's, it's great to hear that it holds such a, a nice place in your memory as I know it does to so many fans. Absolutely. Uh, um, it was, uh, it was a fun, exciting project to get hold of at, at a very early age and to be able to, you know, to fashion a sound, uh, an identity for the show. That's a, as a composer, that's really for, as a composer for film, that's really the most exciting opportunity is to, for somebody to say, look, we think you're creative. We want a new sound for this, go for it, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, I look back on it very fondly having, having had that op opportunity to not only write, the theme, but you know, come up with also also certain types of motifs like the the uh, the guitar uh, wah wah thing, and so yeah, I mean that was great. And then when when I did the uh, the two hour um, uh, Chinese web thing, you know, I was able to I, I wanted to very thoughtfully bring in sort of 
a, a Chinese sound, but but not do it in an obvious and cliche kind of way, you know, in a very tasteful and thoughtful way. So these were great challenges for me at that moment in, in time. And I got to work with the some of the best musicians in, in Hollywood, um, uh, in the best recording studios and so forth. So it was a it was a great time, and and I, I really it was formative. You know, I got to try out things that uh, that I learned from, and uh, and I and I'm so glad that, that that people are so enthusiastic about it, even so many years later. So uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that you're going to get to share this with with uh, avid fans. listening to today's episode and sincere thanks to Dana for coming on the show. Definitely go browse Dana's website to learn more about his career and to hear a bunch of his music. That's www.danacaproffmusic.com. And in terms of the Spider-Man 77 fan site, if you have somehow stumbled upon this podcast and have not checked out the main website, it's at www.spiderman77.com. There's also a YouTube channel. There's a Facebook page titled The Amazing Spider-Man TV Series Fan Site. Finally, be sure to give a follow on Instagram at Spidey TV Series. And we'll be back again soon for another episode.